Amen. Hey, go ahead and take a seat. Um, we're going to do a quick four-week series on identity, because I just believe that over the next couple years, this might be the greatest question you're going to have to ask yourself, you're going to have to teach your kids, you're going to have to wrestle with. What does God say about my identity, and what does culture say about my identity? So we're going to look at that over the next four weeks. But before we do that, I want to take you back to a simpler time. The year was 2007, where Corona could only be found on a beach in Mexico, where Harry Potter books just came out and J.K. Rowling was still liked, and Britney Spears shaved her head. It was a great time. But the thing that happened in 2007 is I played my last football game ever. Uh, I will remember it like it was yesterday. We were playing Colorado State University, uh, and we were in Fort Collins, and, and the, game was, the game was incredible. It was tight. There was no defense. It was like 48 to 46. There was one minute left in the game. We had the ball, and uh, our coach called a timeout. He called us over to the sideline, and, and, and he starts telling us that we're going to run a double pass. And with, with the greatest vocabulary I've ever heard, he told me that if I don't throw the ball backward for this double pass, I'll never play football again. Well, spoiler alert. I never played football again, but it wasn't because of that. So we, we go back out, and, and I get ready. We're in the shotgun, and I snap the ball, and I throw the ball over to the receiver for the double pass for him to grab it and throw it down the field. It gets batted down by Colorado State. They scoop it up, and they run it back for a touchdown. Game over, season over. It was the most awful moment of my football career until the referee comes out, and he says, the previous play is under further review. So we're standing there on the sideline. It was the longest 45 seconds of my life when the referee comes back out and he says, incomplete forward pass. <laughs> and my coach, my coach with that same vocabulary was like, I can't say it. You know, you know what he probably said. He's like, yeah, yeah. And that was the moment in my life that I became a cynic. Because 45 seconds earlier, I had just made the worst decision of my life by, by throwing the ball forward when it should have been backward, and yet now I am the hero of the story, and he loved me. I say all that to say that that's how many people feel about your identity. You feel like a fraud. Most of you walk around, and for one minute, you're liked by everybody, and the next minute, nobody likes you. You're a fake. I mean, culture tells you to just be you, but you and I both know that just being you is like wearing an inauthentic mask that is a bait and switch because, well, one, you don't even know who you are. Some of you don't like who you are, and you're not really quite sure that you should be you. Because every time you try to be you, the outcome of you being you is that you're left more unhappy than you were before, and it only leads you to more despair. You know, let's just be real. It's 2024. I've been here now for six years, and I feel like I can... I can be a little more me. So instead of giving you a be more in 24 kind of pep talk, let's just be real for a little bit. We are living in the greatest identity crisis in the history of the world. Boys are confused about if they should be boys or girls. Society doesn't know what's wrong or right. We can't agree on what's speech and what's not. The president of Harvard University just gets expelled for plagiarism. Okay, we, we have so much going on, and all of it, when you add it up, has led to more hurt, more despair, more depression, more unhappiness than we've ever experienced before. You've been told to be the captain of your own destiny, and the only problem is, is every time you try to do that, that pursuit has not led to joy, it's led to more unhappiness. Something is wrong, and we need to ask the question, what's wrong? Because if you really want to be who you are or who you're said to be, why the heck is everybody so dang unhappy? 
Everywhere you look, it seems like we've achieved more than we've ever achieved. We have more opportunity than we've ever had. And we're more miserable than we've ever been. Maybe that's how you feel. Like you're living in the moment and you're wondering if you're good enough or if you have enough. If that's you, you aren't alone. The CDC actually published an official report this year saying that loneliness anxiety is the next great epidemic of our world. It said it's led to more diabetes, addiction, suicidal ideations, and it has become the leading cause of early death in our lives. As a matter of fact, the leading cause of death in men under the age of 40 right now is suicide. This epidemic has cost the U.S. economy more than $400 billion a year, and most studies will tell you that young adults between the ages of 18 and 25 are the most depressed generation of all time, with 61% of Americans saying that they struggle with deep depression. So you just be you. Y'all, I'm a millennial, and my generation was the generation that was told that you're a snowflake. You can be anything you want to be. Right? We were told that everybody gets a trophy because winning and losing doesn't matter Only participation does. That's a bunch of crap. The great theologian Ricky Bobby said it best, didn't he? If you ain't first, you last. Yo, that's why we have 86 bowl games. The next generation was given a phone by the time that they could walk so they could speak to their snowflake millennial parents because their snowflake millennial parents only look down at their phones. And they're addicted to them. And if you know anything about stats, they'll tell you the more screen time you have, the more depressed you probably are. the the less happy you are. And y'all, we're lying to our kids. We're telling them that they can be whatever they want to be, that they can determine their own genders, they can create their own identities, and they can break free from the box that the world puts them in. So we create movies like Frozen. Let it go. Let it go. That thought experiment has failed. And it has failed miserably. I want to show you a better way. I want to do that by walking through what has been the most impactful story from the Bible on my life. It's a story about Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32. Honestly, it wasn't until somebody explained this story to me that I started to actually wrestle with my own identity and started to let go of what the culture around me told me I should be. And I started to believe the things that God had said about me. And I want to give that to you today because I believe that some of you are, on the, are just on the cusp of freedom if you'll get this. So grab your Bible and meet me in Genesis 32. It's a story, again, of Jacob wrestling with God. By the time you get here, by the time you get to Genesis 32, you're, you're at a place where, where, where Jacob's a pretty miserable person. He, he spent the majority of his life being actually a pretty big jerk. He's deceived people. He's been deceived. And after 30 years of trying to do it all on his own, he finds himself alone and at the end of himself. Yo, there's a lot going on in this story that we're going to cover today, but here's the big idea that I want you to get from this story. If you try to define your own identity or find your identity in anything but God, you will be left alone and miserable. All right? In order to understand this, we need to back up a little bit to Genesis chapter 25, and let me set the scene for what's going on here. Genesis 25, Abraham, the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, if you know the family lineage, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, are about to have twins. They're going to have two babies named Jacob and Esau. Well, there's something going on inside of Rebecca's womb. She, her stomach's hurting, like, like so bad that you would have thought that Isaac went out and got Chinese takeout the night before. Kind of bad. Well, it's, it's getting so bad that she starts to pray to God, and she says, what the heck is going on inside of my stomach? God comes back to her, and she says, actually, there are two nations at war within you. 
And these two nations, these two sons, are going to be at war, and the older brother will serve the younger. That, that's an important detail. But here's what you need to understand. Is that here's the translation. is from the very beginning of Jacob's life, there was struggle. So she gave birth to these two boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the firstborn son, and as he's coming out of the womb, you have Jacob who is grabbing onto the heel of his brother, trying to pull him back into the womb. Okay? Why? Well, because the birth order determined your destiny back then. And by the way, when you got a name back in the day, your name actually meant something, not like today. Matter of fact, I was hanging out with a friend of mine um, not that long ago, a week ago, and, and we were talking about names and naming our children. I, I have four kids. He's got a couple kids. And he says, man, when we had our first kid, like we weren't ready to have kids. So we didn't really think about names all that much. And we were in the delivery room when our son was born, and the nurse hands him to me, and I swore that I heard her say, here's your son, Jacob. So in that moment, I looked at my wife, and I said, I think his name's Jacob. That's how we named our son. So we're sitting there, and the lady sitting next to us was like, yeah, that ain't that bad. At least you weren't named after Michelin. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, my name is Michelle Lynn. Like, literally, my dad named me Michelin. True story. But back in the day, like, their names had meaning. Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name literally meant heel grabber or, or great deceiver. That, that, that was the name that he was given. Esau, by the way, his name meant hairy one because he came out looking like Chewbacca. So if your name's Jacob, by the way, either your dad didn't think about your name or, or they didn't read the baby books, but at least your name's not Michelle Lynn. So there you go. You see, your name was meant to shape the trajectory of your life. Imagine being Jacob. Imagine having your parents name you the great deceiver, and for your entire life, you were born into this identity of deception. Imagine what it would feel like. Like You spend your entire life trying to outgrow an identity that was given for you. By the way, parents, this is why sarcasm with your kids is not worth your time. You don't need to spend your time tearing your kids down with sarcastic remarks. You need to spend your time building them up and shaping them into the people that they're supposed to be. So Jacob, Jacob's giving a name, and his name means to be a fraud or to be a deceiver, but it goes even deeper than that because what you're going to see is that Jacob not only got that name, what Jacob got was an identity that was shaped by the proverbial box of what, of what the culture at his time said you should be. See, Esau, Esau, this hairy man, it, it literally says that he was like a man's man. You, you know, the kind of like the wild at heart man, whatever that means. He, he was super hairy, whatever that means. He probably hunted, definitely watched football. Um, he, the Hebrew says that he had red hair, which if you translate it, meant like he was ruddy. So whenever I think about Esau, I think about like a carrot top Chuck Norris. <laughs> then you had Jacob. It says that Jacob hung out in the tents and liked to cook food. Okay, in that time... The only people that hung out in the tents and cooked food were women. And, and that was a patriarchal time. So this is how it described Jacob, like a smooth man, a quiet man. He probably liked lifetime specials and loved The Bachelor. And if you don't believe me, go back and read Genesis chapter 29, and that's exactly what it says. Now here's the thing. Isaac, their dad. Isaac loved Esau. But he didn't particularly like Jacob. Now, now think about that for a moment. Think about what it would be like in your life to not live up to the status quo of what your dad thought you should be, and then he rejects you. I, 
I have two sons and two daughters, and I think about that a lot. Like, there's this vision that I have for my children. And if they don't live into the proverbial box of what I think they should be, will I still love them? The answer should be yes, but obviously Isaac didn't. And Esau was loved by his dad, but it says that Rebecca, Rebecca loved Jacob. It was a very dysfunctional family. Look at Genesis 25, 29. Listen to what it says. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, because, well, that's what he did, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of your red stew, for I am exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die, for what use is my birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is important. Esau's exhausted. He's probably out doing man things for whatever those things were, and he comes in super hungry, and he sees his brother cooking stew. Well, because he's exhausted, he's not thinking very well, and his brother, because his, his brother's deceptive and crafty, says, hey, look, I'll give you a bowl of stew, but you know what? You got to give me your birthright. And Esau, Esau in his exhaustion was like, okay, what good is that to me? Y'all, for a long time, as I read this story, if if I'm honest, I was like, this makes no sense. Like, who the heck would give up their destiny, their birthright, their inheritance for a bowl of soup? Every single one of us. We do it all the time. See, what ends up happening, and this is the key here, is he was exhausted. When we are exhausted, we give in to the temptation for whatever the thing is, because what we think in that moment is more important than anything that could come in the future, so we leverage everything we can for it. Write this down. Exhaustion is the condition of compromise for all of our lives. Esau was willing to sell out his eternal birthright for temporary satisfaction. Have you ever wondered why you were most tempted at night? Because you're exhausted. Because you're exhausted, you think that having that one thing in that moment is worth leveraging everything for. Now, you wouldn't say it that way. You're you're not sitting there saying, you know what, I'm willing to give up everything just to have a little bit of satisfaction on the internet for 30 seconds. But that's what you're doing. Some of you, some of you on a work trip, find yourself at that hotel bar late at night because you're exhausted from working all day long. And somehow, somehow that lady on the other end of the bar just starts to look a little bit prettier than she ever did. Moms, moms, I get it. You worked all day long. Maybe you stayed home working. Maybe you went to the office. And you know what? Those kids, they are little monsters at night. And what do you do? Because you're exhausted, you compromise. And you start yelling and you start not being the person you wanted to be. And that red wine starts to look a whole lot better, doesn't it? Some of you, some of you, that's why your marriages are falling apart because you're exhausted and you never take the time to rest and renew. You never take the time to date each other anymore. You're like ships passing in the night, or as my buddy over here says, sometimes you're front to front, but oftentimes you're back to back. And you're just going in two different directions. Burnout is the prize of a restless, night, a restless life, and it always leads to making more stupid and regrettable decisions in the moment. Here's what I know is if you don't lean into and create sustainable rhythms of rest in your life, you are going to get tired, and one day you're going to sell your birthright for a bowl of soup. By the way, most research shows you that when you are hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you better watch out. Now listen, some of you, moving into 2024, you're not physically exhausted. Your soul is exhausted. Because what you're trying to do 
is you're trying to find your identity in everything other than the source of where your identity should be found, which is God himself, which is why Augustine would tell you, right, our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. And that, that is why you continually find that everything that society promises you overpromises and underdelivers. It is exhausting trying to be everything you're supposed to be when you're never supposed to be any of those things. That's what you have going on here. Too many of you are restless. Too many of you are trying, but here's what I want you to understand is if you do that, you'll be like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, chasing after the wind. You ever tried to chase after the wind? Go try it. It's exhausting. You ain't ever going to catch it. See, here's what you need to know is nothing will satisfy your soul but Jesus. And the more you try to find it, the more you try to redefine your identity and to be whatever society tells you you can be, the captain of your own destiny, it ain't going to work. How do I know it's not going to work? We've tried it. As a society, we've tried it, and it's not working. You don't need to be a better version of yourself in 2024. You need to be who God made you to be. Maybe you are exhausted because your soul is restless. Like C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is you made for another world. It's not found here. So Esau, Esau sells Jacob his birthright for a bowl of soup, and he hates him for it. Now fast forward the tape a little bit longer, a couple years, and Isaac, their dad, is at the end of his life. He's about to die, and he needs to give the blessing to his son. Well, Isaac's dad obviously needs to give the blessing to Esau, but as he sends Esau out to go hunt some wild game, Isaac's mom comes in and deceives him and says, hey, I need you to go in and give your dad some food that I will prepare, and I'll dress you up like Bigfoot so you can be like your brother, and you go in, and he is going to give you his birthright before he passes away. Look at how it works in Genesis 28. Now, therefore, my son, here's Rebecca talking to, um, to Jacob, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them a delicious food for your father, such as he loves." And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. What? Jacob's like a Gen Z metrosexual and he's like, my brother looks like Brett Favre in a Wrangler's commercial and I don't. What are we going to do about this? Here's verse 12. Perhaps my father will feel me, which is also weird, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, this is interesting. Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So much deception going on here. Verse 15, then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son. By the way, historians have actually found his outfit. So I decided to put a picture up here for you guys to see. <laughs> it's exactly what Esau would have looked like right there. It says, which were with her in the house and they put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which he had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. So Jacob, Jacob basically goes in looking like Bigfoot and smelling like an 18 age boy after P.E. And he goes in and deceives his dad, which probably thought like any 80-year-old president would think and accidentally gave the wrong blessing out. Well, Esau wants to kill Jacob. And Jacob has to run for his life. So Jacob's saga at home ends, and he runs for his life, and he goes and he lives with his uncle Laban. His uncle Laban decides that he is going to now deceive Jacob. Jacob falls in love 
falls in love with a woman named Rachel. His uncle Laban says, hey, that's my daughter, which is already kind of weird that your uncle is now going to become your father-in-law. But he says, that's my daughter, and you need to work seven years for Rachel. So he works for seven years for his new wife, Rachel, whom he loves, only to go into the honeymoon suite, wake up the next morning, and find out that he consummated his marriage with the wrong woman. I don't know how that works. So you can figure that one out. He wakes up with this woman named Leah, which is actually Rachel's sister. Well, he goes to Laban and he's like, what the heck did I do? And what did you do to me? And he's like, listen, I had to marry off my firstborn daughter first. The only problem is, and again, I'm not making this up. You go read it for yourself. The Bible describes Leah as weak in the eyes, which means that she was either cross-eyed or not very pretty. So he goes back and he says, I want Rachel. He works another seven years to get Rachel as his wife. And now he has two wives And these two wives are having a baby-making competition, like level 10 dysfunctional. Like this family is a candidate for the Dr. Phil show. Think about it. His dad disowned him. His mom conspired against him. His brother wants to kill him. His uncle, who is now his father-in-law, which makes a great Florida man joke, has deceived him, gave him the wrong wife. And maybe Dr. Phil isn't even good enough for this. This is maybe like a Jerry Springer type show. Everything in Jacob's life has come to a head. He's run from home only to find more problems from his uncle. He's about to run from his uncle. And the lesson here for all of you is that you cannot run from your problems. I I tried to do this the hard way. I get asked often, how did a kid that grew up in Florida, which is why I'm allowed to make Florida men jokes, you're not, okay, just throw that out there. It's funny when I do it. It's really offensive when you do it. Um, How did a kid like me that grew up in Florida end up at Northern Illinois? Can I just be honest with you for a second? I was running from my problems. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. Some of you that know this, if you're new here, my mom and dad were both married three times. I'm one of 13 kids. I only have one biological brother. That's full biological. So they were multiplying like Jacob and Rachel, uh, Rachel and Leah. And, and my dad, when he got married for the third time, moved in his new family and decided that he was moving his old family out. So when I was in high school, I literally lived in a shed until I moved in and lived on somebody else's couch until I graduated. And And I made the decision that no matter what was going to happen in my life, I was moving as far away from home as I could. So as I got all these scholarship offers to play football, I decided to take the one that was the furthest away from home, only to find out that I was more miserable and more depressed than I ever was when I got up there because you can't run from your problems. You can change your environment, but until you deal with your heart issue, what ends up happening is you end up being more miserable. So you know what I did is I ended up living a lie. I wore a mask. That, 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 that made me be the type of person everybody wanted me to be. And that was exhausting, y'all. Like, and I found out at the end of the day, nobody really liked me. They liked the fake version of me, and I didn't even like the fake version of me. See, what I needed was not, was not a better version of myself. I needed transformation. If I'm honest with you, I think that's where a lot of you are today. I think a lot of you are just faking it. We live in Pleasantville. Like, your yards are greatly manicured. Everything seems perfect, but we have the highest divorce rates in the country. Uh, I, I'm a chaplain for the police department and the fire department. Every phone call that I get is another suicide. We have opioid epidemics that are just destroying our homes here. See, what you don't need is a better version of you. You need to allow God to make you an entirely new person. It, it wasn't until I finally submitted to who God wanted me to be that I started finally experiencing the freedom that I always wanted. I stopped trying to be who everybody else wanted me to be, and I just started being who God made me to be. And that was Jacob's story too. So check it out. 
and Jacob. Jacob, he gets to the end of himself. His uncle is deceiving him, and he decides, I'm going to leave here. Well, he's caught between the crosshairs of his uncle wants to kill him, who has deceived him, and his brother Esau has 400 soldiers waiting on him and also wants to kill him, and he doesn't know where to go. Jacob is left at the end of himself, and he doesn't know what to do with his life. That's where we pick up the story in Genesis 32. All right, meet me in verse 22. The same night, he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jacob. He told them, or he took them, I'm sorry, and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Here it is. And he was alone. Take note of that. He was left alone. Being alone might be the greatest fear in most of our lives. Being exposed with nobody but your own self and your own problems. You alone. I think that sometimes that's God's greatest work in your life, though. You don't have to have all the noise and all the stuff going on around you. It's just you. That's what God did with Jacob. 30 years of getting Jacob to the place where he was actually alone. You know, I believe that it was God's grace that led to the repentance that Jacob is about to experience and the life change, but that grace took 30 years. It didn't happen overnight. God was stripping him of everything that everybody told him it should be. All the deception, all the lies, all the wandering around of this world and trying to be everything everybody else was wanting him to be, and at this very moment, he is left alone. Ask yourself this, in those moments when you have to confront the man in the mirror and it's just you and him, what do you see? Do you see what God says about you or what everybody else tells you you should be? See, I think that that's what's happening here is I think he's finally face to face with himself. And listen to what happens. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, this is kind of a weird story, right? right? This man shows up like Hulk Hogan, and he starts wrestling with him all night long. It's like they're going round and round for seven hours. And Jacob finally gets to the point where he grabs onto him. And he says, hey, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. What the heck is happening? Well, scholars will tell you that this is what you call a Christophany. A Christophany is a point in the Bible where Christ actually appears in the flesh. The God-man comes in person, and he wrestles with Jacob. What you see here and what you're going to see is that whenever Jacob asks to see him or, or know his name, he doesn't do it. Why? Because remember this, whenever, whenever the Exodus happens with Moses, God says, if you ever saw my face, you would die. So it was actually God's grace to wrestle with him at night. And when the day breaks, he goes away. So you're going to see all the points here is that Jacob is actually having an encounter with God himself. But what's Jacob's response? I think Jacob gets it. God, I'm not letting you go. I have tried everything in this world and it doesn't work. And the only way I'm letting you go is if you change me. I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. How many of you have had that moment? How many of you come to the end of yourself and you're sitting there and it's just you and God, you're left alone, and you're like, God, I can't do it anymore. I've tried it all. 
I've tried to be who everybody wanted me to be. I tried to climb the corporate ladder only to find that my ladder was leaning against the wrong wall the entire time. And now I've missed out on everything and I'm not satisfied and I'm empty. I've made more money than I've ever made. I have the greatest job. I have all the titles in the world and my marriage seems to stink. My kids don't like me and I don't know what to do anymore. I'm not letting you go until you give me a breakthrough. For Jacob, this was the parable of his life. He spent 30 years wrestling with the wrong people. He wrestled with his brother. He wrestled with his dad. He wrestled with his mom. He wrestled with his uncle. He wrestled with his own self-doubt and despair. And for the first time in his life, he's wrestling with the right person. Maybe for some of you, that's you. You're wrestling. Why are you so exhausted? You're doing it, but you're wrestling with all the wrong people. You're wrestling with self-image, only wondering if you're ever going to be good enough. Here's what I know is you don't have to be that anymore. Like, don't you think that those seven hours wrestling with God were far less exhausting than the 30, hours wrestling, or the 30 years wrestling with the world? Don't, don't, you, don't you see what's happening here? I think God is trying to get some of you to finally get to the end of yourself so you can realize that it doesn't work anymore. So you'll grab onto God and stop grabbing onto all the things of this world. Yo, that's where everything changes. It's in the moment of your vulnerability that it's just you and God and you're left alone, that you finally pray, God, I'm not letting go of you. I'm not letting go of you until you change me. Here's my question for you. Do some of you even know that you need to be changed? Some of you are still sitting in the 30 years, still trying to figure it out on your own, going through another year of New Year's resolutions that you know darn well don't work. I still have that YMCA membership, 100 bucks a month. Do you know how much my workouts cost me? They're like $3,000 every time I go because I go like once a year, right? Whole 30, you're going to get to about 14 days. You're going to realize it doesn't work. Some self-help book written by Joel Osteen that doesn't work, but you pad in his bank account. You, you, you know it doesn't work. It's grasping for air. The question that you have to ask yourself is, why are you still doing it? You need to get to the end of yourself so you can see that God is good enough. Here's the lesson that you need right here. You need to let go of everything but God and he will change you. See, Jacob, Jacob had come to the end of himself. He stopped creating his own identity and you need to do that too. And let me show you how to do it. It comes in verse 27. God says to him, what is your name? What is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. You know how we do it? It starts with confession. You think God didn't know Jacob's name? God knew Jacob's name. You know who didn't know Jacob's name? Jacob. See what God was doing here is he's saying, who are you? Jacob, if you want me to let you go, if you want me to change you, if you want me to bless you, here's where it's going to start. It's going to start with you being honest with yourself for the very first time in your life. Who are you? Listen to what Jacob says. Jacob says, I am Jacob. He's not just saying his name. No, he's saying, I'm the great deceiver. God, I'm a fraud. I spent my entire life marked by deception. My dad rejected me. My mom manipulated me. My uncle stole 14 years of my life, and I have lived into my identity, and that's who I am. And God says, not anymore. Not anymore. Here's one thing I've learned. Freedom is always on the other side of confession. There's a sense in which God releases you from the bondage 
that you put yourself in. I've told a friend like this. I said, man, you're living in a jail cell and the door's been open the entire time. Why are you sitting in there? So what does God say? What is your name? What has you right now? What has you in bondage? What is your name? That is the most profound question you can ask yourself this year. Because how you answer that question determines your identity. What is your name? Listen to what God said to him. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob, your name is no longer to be defined by what the world says about you or by the self-fulfilling prophecy that you've leaned into. Your name is not fraud anymore. Your name is who I say it is. And I say you are Israel, which literally means those who have striven with God and prevailed. I love that. See, that's the story of identity. There's something about the struggle that makes you who you are. Without the struggle, some of you want to erase your past, but without your past, you're no longer uniquely you. It's what shaped him. It's what got him to the end of his self, but what you have to understand is you are not defined by your past. You're defined by who God says you are. So let me just ask you a question. What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be the type of person that's defined by culture, defined by your past, defined by you be whoever you say you are? Do you want to be the type of person who wrestles with God and comes out the other side defined by him? Again, let me get real with you for a second. Jacob's story, Jacob's story is my story. That's why this was so impactful to me. I spent my entire life struggling through an identity that somebody else created for me. Whether it was that you are never going to be good enough by your parents or you're not cool enough by the kids in school. I spent years in trying to lean into an identity that honestly was suffocating and exhausting. Y'all, it's a lot of work trying to be somebody you're not. It's a lot of work trying to have that image. And when you finally, when you finally achieve the success that you always thought you wanted, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be more empty than you were before and you're going to have to chase after the next thing. You know I know that? Because the most successful people in the world have been there. Tom Brady, after winning his umpteenth Super Bowl in 2007, looks at the world and says, there's got to be more to life than this. I know we wear that one out, but how about Zac Efron? Like, he looks like a million dollars. He's achieved everything. He's made way more than a million dollars. He ends up in rehab because he's at the end of himself, and he says, man, I can't do this anymore. My life is in despair. Robin Williams, from maybe the funniest guy on the planet, tells his wife in a particularly vulnerable moment, he, listen to what he says. He says, if I'm not making people happy, I'm miserable because I'm only as good as my last joke. That's how I felt about football, by the way. You know how hard it was the moment that I, I had a back injury and I couldn't play anymore and I ended up coaching one year and the moment I got done and nobody even knew who I was anymore, they'd moved on to the next guy. And then I found out that that was just a false God that only leaves you in more despair. Why do you think people are so dang unhappy? I'm not just talking about like the people you think should be unhappy, but I'm talking about the people who you think have it all together. Here's what I think. I think that we're spending all of our time, listen to this, this is so important, wrestling with gods that can't bless you. See, you spend your years wrestling with the God of success only to find out that it can't bless you and it only makes you hungry for more. Or, or the God of significance, for what? For what, the approval of people on social media who don't know you and probably don't like you anyway? 
All they like is your highlight reel that you put on Instagram that's not you. Some of you are wrestling with the God of lust and you're flirting with it only to be more, left more empty. Trust me, I know, I've been there. You're, more, you're in more despair. Whatever it is, it only leaves you in darkness. That's why you're so unhappy. By the way, did you notice this? When does God let Jacob go? At daybreak. I think it's fascinating. Rewind the tape 30 years. When does Jacob leave home? He leaves home at night. When does God bless him? At the breaking of day. And I think that's what the gospel does for you. It's saying, I am giving you a new day. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. It's daybreak. It's not this. It's not that he'll change your circumstances. As a matter of fact, he won't. What he'll do is he will give you something better. A new identity found in him. I, I love that you see this here. He doesn't change your past. He offers you a new future. Like, like C.S. Lewis has said, you can't rewrite your story, but you can do is you can change the ending. You see, it's where he wipes your slate clean. He gives you a new name and he changes you forever from that point forward. Here's what I know is you can't come face to face with the living God and not be changed by him. Verse 29, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And Jacob called the place Penel, which literally means to come face to face with God. Saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. You know, the blessing that Jacob really needed was to be with God. To be in relationship with him. To be defined by his father. Listen, it's amazing grace in the best of ways. And I'm telling you, it wasn't until I finally did that in my life, finally realized that the only blessing I needed was the blessing of God that I started to rest in who God designed me to be and live into the skin that he has given me and finally start to enjoy my life because he had delivered me to something better. Here's how I want to land the plane. Identity. Identity is not just who you are, it's whose you are. Do you know whose you are? Because honestly, you have a choice. You can believe the lie that you can be the captain of your own destiny, and I just want to tell you, it doesn't work. Go read the stats if you don't believe me. It's not working, y'all. Or you can finally go ahead and lean into who God has said you are, and the only way you'll truly ever be free is when you get alone with God, you wrestle with him. More practically, here's what it looks like. It means going to that secret place. You know what I mean? That place where you're alone. And you need to do that. And you need to carry whatever you have and lay it before him. Confess it. He already knows it anyway. And as you do that, he begins to free you into being the person he's made you to be because you've already been covered by the blood of Jesus. And if you don't get it, listen, to, listen. Jacob's weakness was his strength. His defeat was the beginning of his victory. When he finally got to the end of his self, that's when a new life began. That's what life in Jesus looks like. He's either Lord of all, or he's not Lord of all. And the only deal he makes with you is all of your sin and guilt and shame for all of his love and change of life and new identity. See, the thing that stands between the freedom of a new life for many of you, listen to me, it's your strength. You still believe the lie that you can do it on your own. You still believe the lie that there's still a part of you that can be the captain of your own ship. And the reality is, it's the only way you're ever going to be changed is if you get to the end of yourself and you finally let go.
Because here's what will happen. For the first time in your life, you will realize that you're not your past, you're not your sexuality, you're not your success. You aren't any of those things. Now, you're not less than any of those things. You're so much more. You're a child of God, made in the image of God, beloved by God, who he would give up his life for you. And if you would lean into that, listen, church, there's a battle going on for your identity. But when you finally understand that God is the ultimate authority over who you are because he created you, it will let you just strip away all that other stuff. So God's words are ultimate authority. It's a plumb line that's worth living by. It's what we believe around here. And it's what can shape you. If you come back over the next couple weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to get into the deep end and I want to show you how God's word shapes your sexual identity. I want to show you how it, it redefines your ultimate identity of who you are and where you're going. And I want to show you how it should shape your relationships. Guys, what you need to know is Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you. And I hope that this year is an invitation into something so much better than the things that you continually chase that overpromise and underdeliver, and finally find freedom in some of your lives. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this word. This word in Genesis 32 changed my life. Lord, if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for you kindly letting me struggle and giving me that limp of my past, like my buddy says, never trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp, and allowing me to strive and struggle with you to finally see that you were better, I don't know if I'd be standing here today. Jesus, I just believe that there are some people in this room that need to get there. They need to have their hip socket, if you will, taken out of joint so that they can finally be immobile enough to hear your blessing. That there's nothing they've ever done to make you love them anymore. Nothing they could ever done to make you love them any less. Because it's not dependent upon what we do. It's dependent upon what you did. You didn't say try harder. You said it is finished. Jesus, thank you for redefining our identity. I pray that these brothers and sisters that I love so dearly would find their joy in you. Would you bless us? We're not letting go. We're not letting go until you bless us. So that's what we're praying for today in this year. In Jesus' name.